Welcome to the University of New South Wales, Canberra, Australian Naval History podcast series, produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy's Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this podcast and return for others in the series. I'm Professor Tom Frame, a former Naval officer and now Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the Australian Defence Force Academy. The centre hosts the very active Naval Studies Group. Please visit our website. To find us, simply Google Naval Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. In this podcast, we explore one of the most significant battles in Australian history, the Battle of the Coral Sea, which was fought northeast of Australia in May of 1942. It was not only a crucial engagement in the Pacific War, in time it became a touchstone for evolving Australian-American relations. Not surprisingly, the 75th anniversary of the battle was commemorated on board USS Intrepid in New York Harbour, an event that involved the United States President, Donald Trump, the Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and a number of the surviving veterans. So to help us gain a sense of why the battle was crucial and to understand something of its consequences, we're joined today by Vice Admiral Peter Jones, author of Australia's Argonauts. Also in the studio is Rear Admiral James Goldrick, author of Before Jutland. And we also have Lieutenant Commander Desmond Woods of the Navy Sea Power Centre. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us and making time to speak with us. Peter Jones, if I can start with you, can you help us understand the course of the Pacific War from the time of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour in December of 1941 through to the events of early 1942? Well, the Japanese had uh, executed a very coordinated and wide-ranging campaign. And really by March, they had made some uh, impressive gains and left the Allies reeling. Um, they had taken Hong Kong, the Philippines, Malaya, Singapore... Dutch East Indies, and in the Southwest Pacific, uh, taken islands like Guam, and uh, were now poised for further uh, operations. Had the Japanese exceeded their own expectations of what they would be able to do in those opening months of the war? I think they thought that initiative uh, that they would have from this large coordinated attack would yield uh, probably the uh, big results, but and also it was their best chance of being able to. Um, attain uh, a lot of territory, but I think they were probably surprised at the lack of preparedness that uh, the Allies had. And But also it was difficult for the Allies to form and operate together when hitherto they hadn't. And so they've attacked Pearl Harbour in December of 1941. By February of 1942, they're striking the Australian mainland. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? They should move so fast so effectively and it seemed as though there was little the Allies could do to stop them. And it certainly had seized the mind of the uh, United States and the United States really saw the importance of Australia as a bit of a bastion uh, for the defence against Japan in, in the South Pacific but also as a springboard for uh, the inevitable offensive actions that would have to take place to defeat Japan. And James, if I could come to you, the Japanese have taken this territory, they've got control of these waters. 
What were they trying to do? How did they think they were going to win the war? What was the overall strategy? Was it simply to gobble up all of the nations that might oppose them? Or was it to control the waters? What was the, the overarching strategy that they had? The strategy was a little muddled. There were two main strands. One, and the Japanese army was very much key to this, was the establishment and extension of what they thought, what they saw as a, of as a defensive perimeter. But the other was the naval strategy of Admiral Yamamoto, which was seeking to have a decisive battle to destroy the remaining American naval capability in the Pacific. Now, the problem with the perimeter idea was that, to some extent, it kept extending. And Coral Sea is based upon the Japanese desire to extend the perimeter and also to intercept sea communications between America and Australia. So they have a plan that had marked off certain islands or waters, and they thought, when we get that, then we'll be secure? Was it a, or a case of just the more they got, the more they wanted? No, to be fair, it was, if we have those islands and have bases on them and the ability, in particular, to operate aircraft from them, then we are going to be secure. The problem was the distances were so great that it really wasn't a defensive perimeter. It became a series of outposts. And how did Australia fit into all of this? What role did the Australian Navy play, or was it just a bit player in a much bigger force of which the Americans were the main element? It was certainly a component of a, of a main element. We did not have, of ourselves, the naval capability, or indeed the air capability, to conduct strike operations against the Japanese. So our assets had to work with the Americans. And of course, it's not simply the Australian task group what is behind the Australian task group is all the Australian naval units and Australian Air Force units, which are increasingly about the protection of shipping and the protection of sea communications. So is Australia important not only for the forces that it brings, but from its location in relation to the Japanese advance and the bases that we had, or are they just incidentally important? No, they, they're key, and the Japanese particularly feared what was already taking place, which was an American build-up of troops and in particular of aircraft. They saw Australia um, as a base for American operations to push against the perimeter and eventually erode the Japanese superiority. So Peter Jones, it's April 1942. The Japanese have got this vast area they now control. What was their strategy in the Southwest Pacific and indeed uh, for the Coral Sea? So the Japanese, as was uh, indicated, want, really wanted to do two things. They wanted to secure their perimeter and they also wanted to have the, the means upon which to intercept uh, the sea lines communication between Australia and America. So they looked at uh, really two, two moves that they would do pretty much simultaneously. First was to send a small invasion force to take Tulagi in the, in the Solomons and also to take Nauru and Ocean Island. Uh, but the main thrust was an invasion force which would come through the Solomon Sea and go and uh, take Port Moresby by land. And the importance of Port Moresby was that it um, provided, as it was at the time, uh, a, an airfield for the Allies in, in New Guinea and Papua to be able to uh, attack Japanese force so that they would be able to um, uh, stop that. But more importantly, they would be able to use Port Moresby's facilities for their own ends. Was it a good harbour? Um, Reasonably good. In, in terms of along the coast there, it was certainly the best in, in Papua, um, and, it, and it was reasonably sheltered. But the main thing really was, for, as a logistics point, up the airfield. So that was 
if you like, the nutshell of that plan. But like many plans the Japanese did, there were a lot of moving parts to it and it was quite complicated. Um, and they had um, a, a one force, one carrier force of two big carriers and just a small carrier with the Port Moresby invasion force to provide that sort of protection with a couple of cruisers uh, in addition to that. So there was quite an amount that had to be done with a relatively small force over a large area. Too complex, the plan? If you look back on it now, certainly uh, overly complex, um, but it's one that, that, that was typical of uh, the Japanese plans at that time. And Desmond Woods, let me come to you. The forces on both sides. Uh, what were the main elements, where were the strengths and weaknesses of the two forces that we know in May of 1942 came together in this decisive battle? Well, famously, of course, this is the battle in which, for the first time, air attack is the principal, indeed, main weapon. Um, neither side fired a salvo on each other, uniquely in history up until that time. Um, the Japanese have two heavy fleet carriers uh, and one light converted aircraft carrier. At one time, they had had five of their six carriers operating uh, in April in the uh, Indian Ocean, and they had brought those back. Only two of the main fleet carriers had been assigned to this operation, which is to put troops into Port Moresby. That's what this is all about, Operation MO. Uh, Shoho was the light fleet carrier, Zukako was the heavy carrier, and uh, her sister, Shukaku. Um, so that's on their side, with the usual number of destroyers uh, to accompany them. On the American side, of course, uh, the Americans are strapped for carriers. At this particular time in the war, Saratoga is, Saratoga's in refit, Wasp and Hornet are being held elsewhere for other operations, and so the maximum that the Americans can put into the Southwest Pacific is Yorktown and Lexington. Yorktown is uh, more modern, faster and more manoeuvrable. Lexington is an early carrier, a bigger carrier, but slower, and that counts. Um, now, coming up from the south, from Sydney, is what turns into Task Force 17.3, which is uh, Admiral Crace, Rear Admiral Jack Crace, Canberra by birth, uh, and he's bringing up uh, Hobart and Australia, the two uh, heavy cruisers. He's joined at Noumea by the USS Chicago, another heavy cruiser, and uh, three destroyers, three, three US destroyers. It all comes together as a consolidated group prior to the battle, um, and we'll go on to talk about what happens thereafter shortly, mm. but that's the two sides. But we need to know at this stage, who is stronger? Who is best equipped <clears throat> for the kind of battle that is going to ensue? In theory, the Japanese. In theory, the Japanese, for a number of reasons, one of which is that they have more experienced air crew at that time. They also have the inestimable value of the long lance torpedo, which runs further, runs faster, and usually explodes. Whereas at that time, American torpedoes don't do that on every occasion. They, that's one of the lessons we might come to out of the battle. Um, Japanese are extremely determined, and uh, if you are weighing up the odds on no more than the relativities of strength, uh, before the battle commences and before all the exigencies that take place, you would say that it was the Japanese. So James Gorick, let me ask, did the Americans who provide the most forces for the battle, were their assets properly arranged or did Admiral Fletcher, the American commander, make some mistakes 
that were, if you like, uh, felt very much in the opening phases and perhaps made it more difficult for what followed? I think it's important to understand that everybody's learning how to do this and to conduct carrier task force operations against an opponent at sea is something that had never been done before. Admiral Fletcher made the mistake of not thinking about keeping his forces together and that was in two aspects. One is that um, his uh, task group of the Yorktown he employed against Tulagi without bringing in Lexington into the operation, thereby reducing uh, the, the offensive effort that could have been achieved. But what I think is more important is that he detached Admiral Crace and the Australian-American cruiser-destroyer group to intercept the invasion fleet going for Port Moresby. Now, one can understand why he did that. It's logical for a surface action group to be dispatched to deal with surface targets. But as it proved, the Yorktown and Lexington both suffered under Japanese air attack. And what the Americans realised as the war went on, and certainly implemented in later battles, was it was important to keep a very strong surface force with the carriers to provide anti-aircraft fire, a ring of steel, if you like. And arguably, if Admiral Crace and his ships had been able to stay with Admiral Fletcher and Admiral Fitch, uh, it's possible that Lexington and Yorktown would have emerged from the final encounters in rather a better state. So when you say he made a mistake, was it a mistake born of inexperience or a mistake born of just poor judgment? I think it was, as to be fair, it was as much inexperience as poor judgment because people had yet to learn mm. really how to do this. The Japanese themselves uh, were making the same sort of mistakes. The Japanese plan was very complicated. It was the, Their forces were distributed over very long distances. And as Desmond's made the point, because the main part of the carrier task force had been occupied with operations in the Indian Ocean. In fact, only two heavy carriers were available to provide cover for this operation. If the Japanese had focused on what they wanted to do and focused on Admiral Yamamoto's ideas, it's quite possible they would have been there in overwhelming strength and Yorktown and Lexington would not have had a chance. So the battle they fought was not the battle that either expected? I think that's a very good way of putting it. It was a battle of continual su surprises even though, for example, the Americans had uh, signals intelligence of Japanese intentions. Uh, they had a great deal of difficulty in finding the Japanese, and when they found the Japanese, they mistook the force they found for the force they were really looking for, which is the heavy carriers. Mm. Similarly, the Japanese had no idea the Americans, where the Americans were. They couldn't even be sure they were at sea. The first indication they had was the strikes on Tulagi, and all they knew then was that there was an American carrier somewhere. So, Peter Jones, what did the Allies know of the Japanese assets that were arrayed against them? And what sense did they have of the strategy they were likely to take? Yes, yeah, so I think it's important just to, to backtrack a little bit, just a, a bit of the history to understand this. Um, the American um, Asiatic fleet had quite a capable uh, cryptoanalysis team who could um, look at Japanese signal traffic and also with the help of the, uh, the British uh, when they were still in Singapore, developed the capability to break some of the Japanese naval codes. How early was that? So that was uh, really in the days before Pearl Harbour. Ah, so someone's going to ask the question, did they know Pearl Harbour was coming? Um, certainly Admiral uh, Tommy Hart, who was Commander-in-Chief of the US Asiatic Fleet based in, uh, in uh, Manila, he was sufficiently aware 
of the, that something was up, that he had surveillance aircraft and he had assets all uh, in the lead-up to that uh, Pearl Harbor attack around the Philippines waiting and expecting a Japanese uh, um, attack. So On the Philippines or on Pearl Harbor? Uh, so that was in the Philippines. Mm. So, so, um, so they had got to the capability where they could uh, monitor the traffic to see if there was an increase in traffic, which ships um, were involved and so on, and also break some of the key naval um, uh, signals. That capability um, went to the Dutch East Indies when the uh, Philippines was lost, um, and when the Philippines were, uh, when the Dutch East Indies was lost, that capability migrated to Australia. Um, the, uh, this team came in three submarines to Australia, um, and it was then joined with a very small Australian naval team. So Commander Rupert Long, head of the naval intelligence in, in Australia, he then said, we will very happily work with you. And one of the first, if not the first, joint Australian and American defence teams was uh, this fleet radio unit in Melbourne, or Frummel, as it was called. One of their first big successes was to break a code, uh, break a, uh, a signal, which said that the from the Japanese to say that they were planning to invade Port Moresby. Once they got that uh, that, that uh, intelligence. They then sent one of the officers from Frommel up to uh, General MacArthur's headquarters, showed him the, the information, convinced him of the, um, the authenticity of it. Because MacArthur was in Brisbane by this stage? Yeah, he was in Brisbane. That's where his headquarters was as the uh, Allied commander. And up to that point, uh, MacArthur thought that the next Japanese move was in fact to uh, take New Caledonia with that view in his mind of trying to to uh, provide that uh, ability to intercept the lines of communication between Australia and America. So, um, but he was sufficiently convinced that, um, that this intelligence was, uh, was real, and even to the point where there was a plane with his staff about to go to uh, New Caledonia, they were diverted to go to Port Moresby. Um, so they had that information, and then subsequent to that, uh, once the... Uh, the forces were deployed in May in the Coral Sea. Um, from was able, with the help of uh, a sister organisation in Hawaii, get information which would indicate the invasion date for Port Moresby. And so Fletcher was then able to uh, work out on the basis of how fast does a, some uh, troop ships uh, steam, roughly work out the likely uh, location of the Japanese forces in the Solomon Sea. So I'm sure that some viewers will be asking the question, but did the Japanese know or reasonably suspect that their uh, ciphers were being uh, intercepted, read, and some intelligence was being acquired from them? I don't believe that was the case. So I think that they, they did not really suspect that. Um, and it was a, a huge um, advantage, of course, for the for the Allies. Is that a mistake on their part, do you think? Not thinking that someone would even try to do it and would be perhaps even marginally successful? Um, they're not the first uh, country to, to uh, think that, and certainly mm. Germany, I think, were, uh, were surprised to, to learn how much of their traffic was, was broken during the war. Mm. James, can you help us with this a little? I think it was a perennial problem. The British uh, ciphers were also broken by the Germans, and uh, I think you have to assume that your ciphers are vulnerable. 
it's important to remember Cyprus is only a part of it, and the Japanese were very sensitive to if they made a radio transmission, then that that would be detected, it could be direction found, and of course the final element is traffic analysis. They were aware that if you're doing lots of signal traffic, somebody is working, is saying there's a lots, lots of signal traffic from those units, therefore something is happening. Yes, yeah, so through that analysis, the, um, the uh, Frimmel was able to give to General MacArthur and to Admiral Fletcher pretty much what they thought the key force dispositions were. So Desmond, can you just take us through the main events between the 4th and the 8th of May 1942? Well, let's divide this up into the, the action that Crace is involved in with his cruisers and then we'll come back to the main battle. So um, Admiral Fletcher signals by flashing light to Crace um, to go to the Jomard Passage and to intercept any transports to be found there because he knew from the signals intelligence that this, is, this was the plan. He also added optimistically refuel destroyers from cruisers, pointing to the obvious fact that without a fleet oiler with them, uh, there's a limited life to any uh, task force's endurance. Crace uh, takes off with uh, sped to the, to the northward to, towards the, the Jomard Passage and is shadowed on his way there. And within an hour of arriving roughly where he wants to be, he's under torpedo attack from Japanese uh, torpedo uh, bombers. Um, now, the classic way to avoid this is what he did, which is to face the attack, to minimise the target area of your ships, and then allow every captain to do his utmost to avoid being hit, uh, which is precisely what happened. Um, Harold Farncombe, one of the uh, very earliest of the cadet midshipmen of the RAN, certainly justified his training and pay that day. He was said to be throwing uh, HMS Australia, a heavy cruiser, around as though it was a destroyer. Uh, and managed to evade every one of these incoming uh, attacks. And so did Chicago, and so did Hobart, um, uh, captained by Harry Howden. Uh, so the Japanese torpedo bombers go away, and they are succeeded shortly thereafter by high-level bombers that come in, that are dropping big dumb iron bombs on these ships. And once again, th th there's a tremendous risk that one of these is going to cripple a ship, stop it in the water, and make it an easy target for those that follow. But in fact, they all just missed as well, mostly due to sk skillful ship handling. So do we have any Australian casualties in the Battle of the Coral Sea? Uh, casualties, yes, but none of them fatalities. Uh, there were three fatalities on board Chicago. Uh, there were nine casualties overall, and it is strongly suspected that the cause of the casualties was the crossfire between ships. Very hard to say with certainty. But the allegation that the Japanese um, aircraft came in and strafed the ships was denied by Crace, who was, after all, an eyewitness. What we do know is that Australia, at one point, was so heavily bombed that uh, Captain Bode on Chicago uh, rose to the salute because he saw her disappearing behind a cloud of, <laughs> of water so heavy that he assumed she'd been lost, and she came through it. And the Japanese didn't get away scot-free. They were being... Uh, fired on relentlessly from all the high-angle anti-aircraft weaponry that the ships and destroyers, three destroyers and company had, and some of them were driven off, and some of them decided to drop their bombs or torpedoes a little earlier than was likely to, to, to cause damage. So it was a resolute defence, but luck had to come into it. After all, you could say that um, Repulse, the battlecruiser, uh, was thrown around in exactly the same 
uh, determined manner. But the Japanese wisely learned their lesson and came in from all points of the compass simultaneously and took her out. And that could have happened. Had any one or all three of those cruisers been lost with catastrophic loss of life, the question Fletcher would have to have answered was, why did he send them with no air cover or protection? And tell us about the main action. The main action is going on um, where Lexington and, uh, and Yorktown are engaged. Um, there's a whole succession of flights and events, and I won't go into all the detail. The Japanese made the mistake of believing that they had uh, located the car a carrier battle group to the south, when in fact all they'd located was a fleet oiler called Miyosho with her accompanying destroyer Sims. They put in a major attack on what they think is a major target, denying themselves the opportunity to use the same time to make the attack they should have been making on Yorktown and Lexington. Uh, however, the following day, um, they are spotted. Shoho, which is a light carrier, is relentlessly attacked by Dauntless dive bombers and sunk, uh, and uh, Shukako has got a bomb put through her flight deck, which means that she can recover, but she can't launch aircraft. That's a pretty serious situation for an aircraft carrier to be in. Zukako is the lucky ship. She disappears into a rain squall. Meanwhile, the attack on Yorktown and Lexington is going on. Lexington's captain finds himself in the unenviable position of trying to dodge torpedoes coming in from both sides of his ship. So if he goes starboard, he's going to go into the port ones. If he goes port, he goes into the starboard ones. At one point, one of his um, officers said, Sir, stay on the same course you're on because we have two torpedoes running parallel to us on either side. So he was doing a pretty good job. Must have been hair-raising, I mean, was to, to be surrounded by everybody trying to kill you. Yes. I mean, I think we, if people have no concept of naval warfare, I think that it's coming from the air, it's coming through the sea in torpedoes. It, it, it must have been unnerving for those thinking, look, how do we do countermeasures against weapons we don't uh, perhaps yes. understand? Jokes. And there's another part to that. Most of the people in the ships can't see what's going on. That's right. And can't really get the information about what's going on in the time to associate it with the noises. And there's a very eloquent testimony from the uh, uh, people inside the ships of what it was like with, these, uh, with the appalling noise, the violent manoeuvring, and the understanding that you might not be able to get out in time mm. if the ship is hit. So as the battle, James, is being fought, the individual ship's captains and certainly the ship's companies aren't getting a sense of where all this is going. This just seems, what, to them sporadic? Does it seem uh, unplanned? Does it seem chaotic? I think chaotic's probably the best word. And certainly Admiral Crace was having great difficulty understanding what's going on. He, in fact, is getting most of his picture not from Admiral Fletcher, uh, but from listening to the very confused radio traffic of the American aircraft, um, mm. which was not well disciplined at that stage. And you know, I think he picked up that they they'd scratched a carrier at some point. But uh, he is trying desperately to work out what is going on. Um, so he, at that level, is having problems. His captains, I think, are much more concerned with keeping their ships from getting torpedoed. Mm. And Peter Jones, who is doing well? Uh, who is getting the advantage? Who's yeah. getting the upper hand? So I, th I think it's important to appreciate the way a lot of these attacks were queued was by air surveillance. Uh, both by carrier and land-based aircraft uh, on both sides. 
the way that those aircraft identified the targets or prospective targets is through um, visual means. So there was no airborne radar in these days, uh, in this period of the war. Um, and so there was going to be inaccuracies. There was going to be inaccuracies first off in terms of the location that, were, that they were reporting because the aircraft roughly knew where they were, but they, this was well before the days of uh, satellite navigation, of course. Um, so there was that inaccuracy. The other inaccuracy, which we see time and time again, all during uh, World War II, is inaccuracies in terms of identifying contacts. So we see that, you know, going back to the immediate submarine attack in Sydney, misidentification of ships in, in a port. You now have them at sea with intermittent cloud cover and so on. And so you saw that case that Desmond talked about where Japanese got a report of a formation of, of enemy ships to the south of the Japanese carriers, and off they went. And they, and they thought they were carriers, yet it was a destroyer and a tanker. Um, so both admirals, Admiral Takaki and, and Admiral Fletcher, had these reports that they receive with um, inaccuracies built in in terms of composition, identification, location, and they've got to make a judgment. And at times they have to make a judgment very, very quickly, like within minutes they have to make a judgment about what are you going to do. And so, um, so it's within that context that, uh, in the case of the Japanese, they made that uh, the decision, we'll continue on with that strike to the south. Even though when that strike had been launched, then they got a subsequent report that actually the, the task group is probably to the west. And I think um, Admiral Takaki probably was very much aware that there could be inaccuracies, and so that second report could have been wrong. So luck is, is, a, is a big issue, but also just uh, judgment. And, mm. uh, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, Fletcher, um, pr his judgment was probably sounder in some of these key points. Um, and as James said, the, this is quite new um, in terms of these long-range carrier operations. Although the Americans have practised this many, many times in the interwar period, this really was the first one for real. And James, can I just ask you, is there a turning point in this battle? And if there's a turning point, does it lead us to someone winning? Because as you've described it so far, it's chaotic. It's not clear to me from Desmond's description who's winning and how you might judge success. Were there turning points? What were they? And at the end of it, who could say they'd been successful? I think there were three turning points. One is when Admiral Takagi orders Operation MO the invasion fleet to turn around. That, of course, is profoundly significant for um, no invasion of Port Moresby. But I think there were two operational turning points which are really important. One was um, the damage the Americans achieved on Shokaku and the attrition of the Japanese aviators mm -hmm. that's involved, uh, even though 46 aircraft were able to recover to Zuikaku. The second is the limited damage achieved on the Yorktown. Mm. Yes, Lexington ended up being very badly damaged and by a series of internal explosions due to petrol vapour has to be sunk by her own side. But Yorktown is only badly damaged enough um, that she's marginal for operations at that point. But they can get her back to Pearl Harbour and reef repaired in time to take part in Midway. Whereas Shikaku and Zuakaku 
are not available for the midway operation for the decisive battle that Admiral Yamamoto wanted. So is that the essence of the success of the Allies, uh, the unavailability of those carriers that you mentioned? Yes. And in terms of turning that invasion fleet around, what effect did that have on morale in both the Japanese Army and the Japanese Navy? I think the Japanese didn't realise the full implications of the failure to take Port Moresby at that point. Uh, I think there was some disappointment, but the Japanese thought they'd achieved much greater naval success in the battle than they had. They thought they'd actually sunk both both carriers. So uh, they think they've achieved great results. Tulagi has been occupied, um, so they've got part of the cake, if not all of it. So I don't think it's the Coral Sea. Uh, Yes, if we look at it now, Coral Sea is the indication that the Japanese overall plan is going to start going badly astray. But I think it's midway. We'll come to that in a moment. The Japanese spirit changes. And just uh, to help those of the viewers who may not know, this is not yet, you've mentioned about the Japanese aviators, this is not yet the period of the kamikaze, is it? No. And, And the kamikaze really doesn't come into late 1944 and is a combination of the increasing Japanese desperation, but also the realisation that what happened between 1942 and 1944 was an incredible increase in the lethality of the anti-aircraft defences. Not simply the Americans had lots of aircraft so they had to have fighter protection, but the combination of additional anti-aircraft guns, director systems, what were called uh, proximity fuses, which were a little mini radar, uh, meant that a manned aircraft with a gravity weapon could not penetrate a surface ship's defences and have sufficient uh, chance of either getting that weapon home or surviving the experience. So it no longer turned on a matter of courage or skill. It's no. just technology said you are not going to be successful in doing this. Exactly. The technology had... Uh, a, a, the defence had now met the technology of the offence. So the Japanese go for the kamikaze. The Germans, interestingly enough, because they had better technology, had gone for radio-controlled um, guided bombs which would be launched from outside gun range and guided in. And Desmond, what's your judgment of the outcome of this battle? I think this is a good time to introduce the the grand strategic thoughts that are going on, and Curtin is not at all happy about the outcome. Um, He writes to Doc Ebert. So our Prime Minister Minister writes to... Writes to Doc Ebert, who's his man in Washington, the attaché to Roosevelt, and he says, I don't think they've got the picture in London and Washington... Uh, that we are still uh, quite unable to bring to bear sufficient weight to do the job of we need to do. And he cited as an example the fact that those troop transports that had come around from Rabaul intending to take Port Moresby and had been turned back uh, weren't attacked. They still existed. They'd gone back to Rabaul. All those troops are still there awaiting their next set of orders, which in fact will be to take Port Moresby but by land, um, because this is a huge build-up of troops in that area for the occupation of Port Moresby, one way or the other. So one shouldn't get the idea that in Australia people are ringing church bells and, and celebrating. Far from it. This does not appear at the time to be a victory, and you can make a strong case for saying that it was a tactical loss, but it was a strategic victory in retrospect. And as the, as the battle developed, it became obvious what a turning point it was, but not at the time. 
Curtin is not happy. He also is unhappy about the fact that MacArthur's area of operations is where this took place, but of course Nimitz is the overall commander of the Pacific area. So that's Admiral Admiral Chester Nimitz? Chester Nimitz. This means that there's been a breakdown in communication between land-based air assets and what's going on at sea. Now, you might very well say that in that era that was inevitable. But, for example, I didn't quite finish the story of Crace. After the Japanese bombers have gone away, three American bombers turn up and start attempting to hit Crace's force. And he's not happy about that. He records in his diary the fact that the only saving grace of the situation was their aim was worse than the Japanese. But that, supposing one of the ships had been sunk in a, what we would now call a blue-on-blue friendly fire attack, that would have been a disaster. Did that bit of his diary become public at that time, or did he <laughs> kind of shield it from public view till it was uh, well, less controversial? I think you're going to ask me about Crace a little later on, so <laughs> I'll, I'll keep my powder dry on that. But, but my, my general point is that one shouldn't ever get the idea that the fact that we see this battle retrospectively as being so critical and so important, and by far the most significant event in Australian uh, proximity during the Second World War, doesn't mean that we can apply the lens of our understanding to the people at the time. But there'll always be people that will exceed expectation in their performance, and that despite all the difficulty of fighting this battle, are there some people who emerge from all of this as being very good operators who are worthy of emulation? Yes, indeed. And I think that Harold Farncombe uh, deserves credit for saving Australia. I mean... The ship Australia, not the country. The ship Australia, yes. I mean, that's that's undoubtedly a very skillful piece of ship handling. Bombs are coming down so close to the ship that people were being drenched on board. That's how close it was. Um, Crace comes out of it well. Um, He was given a very difficult job to do without the air cover he desperately needed. Uh, He achieved his outcome. He was left in the lurch, to use um, his phrase, and Fletcher's who acknowledged retrospectively that um, Crace had had grounds for concern that he had been left so far away. Um, There are, of course, if if you want to speak uh, beyond personalities, the American pilots did a superb job of finding the ships they needed to find, striking them and sinking one, crippling another, uh, and, as James has said, making them unavailable for Midway. Without their dauntless courage, in every sense of the word, that would have been impossible. So there are no villains. There are no people who have badly let the side down, who performed abominably, who should have been relieved of command. So there might not have been stunning successes, but there were no uh, damning failures for which some people ought to have been indicted. Given the fog of war, I think that's true. I think, reluctantly, one also has to concede that Admiral Ernest King has to have some credit for his understanding that the Southwest Pacific really did matter at a time when most Americans would have wondered what on earth their forces were doing so far away from home and from protecting Hawaii and all the things that come later. He understood that a fleet in being is not a fleet in harbour. It's a mobile fleet that gets out there and takes the fight to the enemy and attempts to attrit it, even from a position of numerical inferiority, which the Americans were in at that stage of the war. So King who is not everyone's favourite admiral, by no means, uh, given his generally difficult personality, nevertheless gets that bit right. So the grand strategy works. Nimitz understands that he must attach two carriers, that's all he can spare, 
that they are just enough to do the job, to hold the line, and as James has said, the defensive perimeter that the Japanese were attempting to establish was never a perimeter in the sense that it was all defensible. It was very small island bases. The argument the Japanese Navy put forward, which was that if they could seize these different places uh, out as far as Samoa, they would in some way be able to interdict uh, communication between Australia and the United States, it doesn't stack up. <laughs> it's an awful lot of water. There would always be ways of getting supplies, ships and troops through to Australia, no matter whether the Japanese had succeeded with that or not. They would have made it more difficult if they had land-based air cover operating from those islands. But there's a fundamental flaw at the base of the Japanese naval strategy, and that's it. James, we've heard a couple of times about Midway. Can you help us understand the connection between the Battle of Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway, which happens about a month later? Midway is very much based on Yamamoto's desire to achieve a decisive action and to destroy the American fleet and force America to the negotiating table. Um, and he seizes upon the idea of taking the island of Midway, um, which is close enough to Hawaii to create a considerable problem for the Americans if it were fortified and made into a, a Japanese airbase. But it suffers from many of the, the, the concept he comes up suffers from many of the same problems of the Coral Sea because they do other things. It's a very distributed force. Uh, in addition, there's a major operation going on for the Kuriles uh, in the northern Pacific. Um, and what he doesn't know is the Americans develop a very good idea of his intentions. But, um, and he also uh, distributes his fleet very badly in the sense that uh, there's still the Japanese fixation on a decisive battle that we fought on the surface. Um, and it's quite clear that even though there is the carrier striking force at the heart of the Japanese capability, Admiral Yamamoto is still thinking about the battleship force with the Yamato and the Masashi as being what is going, going to finally bring about the end. So is his problem that he just lacks imagination or he's inflexible? Um, Inflexible is not the word I'd use. Uh, I'd say it, it's, he's rigid in parts. Mm. Um, it's, he's understanding how Japanese senior officers think is uh, one of the hardest things we have to face as historians in 2017 uh, because it is a very different culture. Um, it is one that uh, was looking in on itself and had very strange relationships. Um, and you know, one has to work very hard to understand. Even Yamamoto, who'd lived in America, mm. thought he understood Americans, thought he understood American capability. It's very hard to understand even how he was thinking. Do we understand it really now? No, I don't think we do. So some things just seem to be opaque. Some things are fairly opaque. Uh, for example, um, just to give you an instance of how things worked, uh, one of the carrier division admirals got drunk and tried to beat up Admiral Nagumo, the carrier task force commander, because he didn't think his carrier division was going to the Pearl Harbor operation. And the staff managed to drag this admiral off Admiral Nagumo, um, uh, but Admiral Nagumo had to promise this junior admiral that he, his carrier division could go. Not the kind of thing you'd see in the Allied forces? No. And is it running on a clan thing? Is it no, just professional jealousies? Clans are there. It's very interesting. There is this... Um, the Army and the Navy are, are daggers, but there are factions within the Navy, and there is also what's called rule by juniors. 
um, and indeed this admiral's, this junior admiral's behaviour is part of it. Uh, the rule by juniors was that you find seniors incredibly dif deferential to their juniors' views, and uh, and some of the junior officers uh, didn't hesitate to assassinate senior officers who they didn't think were doing the right thing by Japan. So it's an incredibly complex social picture. It sounds it. Now, Peter Jones, we're not getting the impression, are we, that Midway's not been successful, the war isn't over, is it? Because we know that it goes on for another three yeah. years or so. So take us through, we've had Coral Sea, we've had Midway. How does Coral Sea, if you like, shape up what happens for the rest, just of 1942? Right, so, um just to follow on from Desmond's point, um, so Curtin was very anxious about the outcome. In Australia, the, after the Coral Sea um, battle concluded, it was reported as the most uh, significant battle since the Battle of Jutland. So that was in the press, the, um, and you read articles, um, how that was seen and uh, in very much those terms. Um, this epic battle had taken place and, um, and the, 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 the Japanese onslaught, if you like, had been stemmed. But the point Curtin made to the Australian people was that this is one of a long series of battles. So the beginning of the end, or not even no. that? Yes, yeah, so, so, um, so it, in, in some respects, some people have said that the, the Battle of the Coral Sea is the end of the, the beginning, beginning so, so it's the end of the Japanese onslaught. Um, not quite the case, but, but it's pretty close. And what I mean by that is Japanese still were about to go and try and take the Solomons. So, um, so they still had expansionist... Uh, ambitions, if you like, from that perspective, but but it was really very much that whole Solomon's piece was to to secure that perimeter. Um, but uh, but the the key point that Curtin was trying to get across to the Australian people was this is a long um, uh, war. It's one that we have to be much more energised about. Um, and he also made the point in the, in one of the same speeches where he then talks about the alliance with America that we are side by side on, on bended knee together uh, and that we are pledged together uh, in partnership to defeat uh, Japan. And, and I think that is one of the reasons why this battle resonates in terms of that the alliance with America, that we're very much, this was the first battle where we're very much in partnership. Um, we'd certainly had forces engaged together in... Um, in that, that early onslaught. But this really was the first one where working as this, this partnership. And I think that's the way that this battle should be seen. It's the it's beginning of this long partnership where our forces, over a period of time, increasingly integrate with the Americans and become um, a, a much more um, uh, harmonious working uh, partner with the Americans and we change the way we fight, we change some of our equipment and some of our procedures and all that sort of thing to be uh, you know, a, a really valued contributor to the Allied war effort. So the battle is significant not just because of what happened and the, the outcome but Australia and the US worked together at sea and it was the beginning of a very fruitful partnership. That's how we ought to see part of what's yeah. going on here. That's right, and the fact that Curtin was trying to use this battle to psychologically prepare the country for
for this long commitment and to work very closely with the Americans. So James Goldrick, when people say, oh, Coral Sea, it was the battle that saved Australia and we should look at Coral Sea as, if you like, a naval Anzac Day, uh, I'm getting the impression that you wouldn't support that view. No, I wouldn't. It didn't save Australia. It reduced the pressure that Australia would have come under if the Japanese had been based on Port Moresby. And, for example, as part of the Japanese plan, there were intended to be raids on Townsville uh, from the uh, carrier covering force. Peter's point is absolutely right. It really marks the start of an effective partnership, and I think that's how the Australian Navy and the Australian Defence Force and the and Australia should both remember and recognise it. It's a small part, I think, of the heritage of the Australian Navy, which is the equivalent of Anzac Day. But that heritage extends to the Sydney Emden action in 1914, to everything that was done in the First War, to the naval bridging train, to the Sydney actions in 1940 and 41 to the Tobruk Ferry, all these other things are part of our heritage. What the Coral Sea is about is, as Peter says, it's the beginning of an effective and very important partnership that in fact is critical to our strategic history from 1942 onwards. Now, we're filming this podcast in the 75th anniversary year of this battle. Can I ask each of you, and I'll start with you, uh, Desmond, what one thing would you like the viewers to take from our discussion about this battle, either operational, tactical, cultural, commemorative, what would be one thing that you'd like them to take away from our discussion today of this battle 75 years ago as we're filming? Few people would know or remember that there was an Australian flying from USS Yorktown in a wildcat. He was a boy called Leslie Knox, born in 1922. Uh, He had been born in Brisbane to Scottish migrant parents and for some reason, halfway through his childhood, he was taken to America and he graduated from the Naval College and got his wings and a year later was flying from Yorktown. He was at that particular point in the battle where two waves of aircraft, fighters and bombers, passed each other, Japanese bombers, American fighters. He was the tail end Charlie in his squadron, uh, as the rear guard, and so he was in the best position to dive and attack the Japanese bombers heading for Yorktown. And Obviously, his, his squadron mates took slightly longer to turn, for so there for a while he was pretty much on his own. He was seen to shoot down one of the bombers uh, and to uh, break up as much as he could the squadron of Japanese aircraft to allow his uh, squadron mates to get in amongst them, and they mauled them very heavily. Uh, he was lost. He was never seen again. He obviously crashed in the sea. And uh, the American Navy promoted him from ensign to lieutenant, posthumously, awarded him the Navy Cross and named a destroyer, a new destroyer, the Leslie B. Knox. So there's an example of an Australian by birth flying from an American carrier, wearing American Navy wings, but undoubtedly flying in defence, to some extent, of the land of his birth. James? I think the real lesson is that war is incredibly complex, incredibly uncertain, uh, that you are going to be facing an enemy that you're not sure about what they're doing, why they're doing it, or even where they are. And I think that's as true today as it was then. And that if you're going to have uh, an effective fighting force, you need to have people who can continue to make the right decisions or to make enough of the right decisions, no matter how complex it gets, no matter how much the fog of war. 
So you'll never know everything that's going on. It's the best guess, best, best approximation, and your professionalism and judgment is key. Absolutely. Mm. And Peter? The outcome of the Battle of the Coral Sea in the immediate sense meant that the Japanese said, all right, we'll take Port Moresby by land, mm. and they identified a, a little-known tract called Kokoda that they were going to go along, and in fact the, the soldiers were going to take bicycles to, to go on, and of course the rest is history. Yeah, I almost hesitate to add that my own life intersected with the Battle of Coral Sea and that uh, my group at the Naval College were the first ones that walked as a naval group over the Kokoda track in 1981, and the simple thought of walking over the Owen Stanley Ranges I kind of half wonder whether going by sea wasn't the best route after all. Well, if I could just add to that, of course, there was one further maritime attempt uh, on southern New Guinea, and that was Milne Bay. And that is credited by many with being the first time that the Japanese were defeated on land. Um, there will be others who might contest mm. that, but certainly it was a major reverse for them. After that, the Kokoda Track was the only way over. And so I think we shouldn't forget Milne Bay as an adjunct to this uh, deterrence of the invasion by sea. The Japanese had a profoundly maritime view and if they could do things by sea they would and they tried at Milne Bay and failed. Well there's much upon which we ought to reflect 75 years on but sadly that's all we've time for in this particular podcast. My thanks to Peter Jones, to James Goldrick, to Desmond Woods for their insights and my thanks to you for joining us. We look forward to your company for the next podcast please visit the UNSW Canberra Naval Studies Group website for details on other podcasts in this series. Bye for now.